millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi Gary, you're looking lovely if you don't mind me saying so. I didn't mind at all, Peter. Ah, off for the goods. We're all in good moods today. Excellent moods, in fact. What a lovely buttery man you are. Yes, you're a buttery man as well. One of our chums called you that and you've been worrying ever since, haven't you? I have, yes. (laughs) Right, what are we doing today then, Pete? Well, we're doing Hugh Trenchard, uh, who... he was buttery. No, he wasn't. (laughs) He was... uh, he was, uh, um, um, I, I nearly led myself into trouble. <laughs> he was a difficult man. Um, why is there controversy about him? Well, it's his aggressive tactics he pursued during his period as commander of the Royal Flying Corps on the Western Front from 1915 to 18. How would you, I mean, Gary, before you, uh, before you came to understand the, 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 the ways of great war history, how would you have described him? Well, he's, he's often depicted as a, an intransigent bore of a man at sending his men flying over the lines time and time again, often in near obsolescent aircraft, uh, when more flexible tactics could have reduced the butcher's bill. And as such, Aww. he's become a lightning conductor for angst over the losses suffered in the Great War. Now, he reminds you of somebody, somebody else suffered. Well, it's, it's much the same with Arthur Harris, isn't it? Blamed for the painful bomber offensive over Germany in the Second World War. With, with 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 less reason because the, the bomber offensive is quite still quite controversial. But a lot of what um, a lot of what um, Trenchard did has a reason, and he's often bracketed with uh, with who 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 else does he also get bracketed with from the Great War? Oh, notably uh, with uh, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig as the uh, epitome of the stupid general. You oh, know, the, lions the, led by donkeys. Absolutely. Now, we're hoping to show today that this is totally unfair, aren't we? And that there were good reasons for the tactics that he employed. Yeah, so we'll have a look at his background. Because, funnily enough, his background's great fun, isn't it? Um, um, a lot of our sources are from... There's a famous biography of written in the 50s, which I can't remember at all. The one we uh, used mainly was Boom Trenchard by Russell Miller. So I'll just mention that now, because I know I forgot to put it in the notes, and I'll not remember the title at the end of this. I just assumed it was Wikipedia. Wikipedia was your main source. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so when was he born, Gaza? Well, he we, was... As we like to call you. <laughs> he was born on the 3rd of February, 1873, in Taunton. Ooh, did he have a Taunton accent then? Oh, dear. 
<laughs> no, no, he didn't. Let's just establish that before we are led into the ways of pirates. <laughs> his early education was undistinguished. His reports uh, were marred by accusations that he was clever but lazy. My reports at school were often marred by by uh, similar things. It's just one of the words wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> Guess which one? Lazy? <laughs> no, that was that. <laughs> they never mentioned anything about me being clever. <laughs> now, his youth, it's disrupted by the bankruptcy of his father in 1889. So he'd be about 16. Now, that's a bad time for your dad to go bankrupt. Yeah, and also his own inability to spell. Now, it's possible that he suffered from dyslexia. Or he couldn't be asked. No, certainly he, he still failed to commit himself to the studies necessary to pass into his chosen military career. So, so yeah, may, yeah. maybe laziness was a, was part of. Well, it. you know, dyslexia is a very real thing, but not everyone who says this suffer from. You, you can't attribute it to the past before there were a medical diagnosis, really, with with any certainty. Can you? We often just use modern things about people in the past without really knowing that's whatever true. the truth is he was bloody awful at spelling i, I know several other people <laughs> i wonder if you could pronounce things he's probably got dates right though pete and he could pronounce things probably <laughs> now after failing numerous entrance examinations for sandhurst he managed to get a militia commission with the forefar and king cardine artillery that's like the 554 far is only different isn't it yes yeah, um similar. It's, uh, I wrote a song about this called Backdoor Banging. Um, um, for the, uh, those naughty lumps are fine body of men. I'm not entirely sure what the connection is. Though. Well, it's just uh, the going through the back door. And, uh, oh. and uh, that, that is a way of getting a commission when, you're, when you can't pass the exams, isn't it? And then, at last, at last, at last, what happens? It's a big surprise to everyone. What happens? What happens, Gary? Well, he passes, and in September 1893, he was commissioned into the second Royal Scots Fusiliers, who were based in India. Now, let, let's. how does he fit into the officer's mess? And let's start talking about what type of a man was Treasure, because he seems to almost... His character traits are established quite early, aren't they? Let's get... What, what was he like? Well, he didn't really fit in because of his uh, abrasive character. And, and in fact, in the mess, he was nicknamed the camel for his small head, long neck, and habit of grinding inarticulately. Grunting, in I think you'll find that might be. Grunting, <laughs> grunting. inarticulately. <laughs> what would he grind? Well, we're nah. not going there. I All right. thought, I thought <laughs> of at least two things. All right. But he, he would grunt inarticulately. You're thinking of in, peppercorns, aren't in you? answer to any question put to him. So he was taciturn. He was. Uh, he was. Uh, Ooh, is that what he was? Monosyllabic, taciturn, and grunted a lot. Hmm. Who does that remind me of? Not us. Either of us. We talk far too much for our own good. Um, so he didn't fit in well. He's. He's. <laughs> They used to say people like this were, were clubbable. We were not clubbable, but I've always thought he, he was more well and truly clubbable. Yeah, I'm not quite sure <laughs> his, what you mean, but his, his fellow his fellow officers must have often fancied taking a large club to him. Now, now, typically for for the time, he did show enthusiasm for for polo uh, and uh, a man's game, and gave a sign of his formidable organisational talents in setting up and running the regimental polo team. 
Yeah, that's that. I mean, that does take quite a bit. You've got to get the polo horses to get the team established, organise the fixtures, the grounds, the rehearsal. The rehearsal. The sandwiches. The sandwiches. Yes, I'm sure he spent a lot. What sandwiches would, would you have liked? Ham. You like a ham sandwich, don't you? Anyway, um, so so that's one thing. Now, in 1896, the second uh, Royal Scots Fusiliers, they go home back to England and they're replaced, as in the British Army system, by the first battalion Royal Scots Fusiliers. There's a surprise. And uh, Trenchard wants to stay in India. So what does he do? Well, he transfers into the first battalion. Ooh. Now, um, so, uh, so, so he's still in India, but then he gets his first opportunity for active service. And... Uh, it, and what would that be? It's not the Sudan, because quite a lot of them go to the Sudan, but he, he gets into the Boer War. And how does he, how does he get in? Because I know that you're fascinated by this and want to give us a root and branch to it. <laughs> well, he'd recently <laughs> been promoted to captain and he volunteered to rejoin the Second Royal Scots Fusiliers. Because they were already, they'd gone to, from England to, uh, to, to, to Boer land. As well, yeah, South he was Africa. going to be what was known as a casualty replacement. However... Um, the uh, the colonel of the Second Royal Scots he he rejected the application, and at the same time, the uh, uh, the viceroy of India, Lord Curzon, he was worried about the brain drain from India going to South Africa. So he put a block on any on any uh, further uh, levers, and it was only when uh, Trenchard wrote directly to Lord Curzon's secretary. Um, Who is that? <laughs> can't read it can you <laughs> no uh, let's uh, let's it was that Edmund up. Ellis oh ha so what who, rank was he uh Edmund Ellis I had no idea but he was uh, military secretary to Lord Curzon and he made the arrangements for Hugh Trenchard to uh, rejoin the second Royal Scots in uh uh, in South Africa. So he gets there, what, 1900? Yeah, he arrives in 1900 and he's selected to command a mounted infantry section formed from the battalion, from where he was detached from the best horsemen in the battalion. So they picked the best horsemen and made, and, and made them into this mounted detachment. And of course, he would be one of the best horsemen because he played polo. Well done. Thank you. I, I, I remember Polo involves horses. Now, he was then to add to his command some 300 men of the Australian Bushmen's Corps. Fine body of men. He'd impressed them greatly by uh, commandeering illicitly. You mean, you mean stealing? Commandeering illicitly all the gear that they needed from a goods train. A passing goods train. <laughs> Well, I presume it was stopped at the station, but yeah. So yeah, uh, so he was leading them, and he was. Uh, what were they employed? At? Well, they were they were on an expedition to suppress Boer raids and the Krugersdorp railway. Now he doesn't last that long. Uh, there's a vicious little uh, skirmish, isn't there? And what happens? Well, Trenchard gets severely wounded. Now. At the time, he was furious at the failure of the Ayrshire Yeomanry to push home their attack on some Boer Ridge positions. And you're going to be Sergeant Gilbert Lewis. He stamped around, calling them damned cowards, and in his anger he went beyond the wall of the farm. I said, look out, sir, they hit that cornerstone a minute ago. And he replied, shows what damn bad shots they are. And as he said it, he was shot in the chest. <laughs> Yes. How many stories have we heard of that nature? But yes, well, um, he had been shot through the left lung, and uh, he had additional spinal cord. Is that because the spine's near the lung? Yeah, and it and it restricted his ability to walk. 
So he's he's pretty comprehensively buggered, isn't he? So he goes it for 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 a time. It seems like his military career is over. He goes back to England, where he's incredibly rude to the person who was put in charge of him, Lady Sausage or something. I'm just doing this to ruin it because I know you'd look this up on Wikipedia. Lady Dudley. And you were particularly looking forward to telling me about that. But anyway, he was staggeringly rude to her. And and uh, nevertheless, he was sent off to uh, to, to, uh, to to recover uh, at uh, St. Moritz in Switzerland. Presumably they thought that the clear mountain air would help him. But he had another idea in mind when he saw the mountains. What was that, Gary? Well, he became obsessed with mastering the Cresta Toboggan Run, which... <laughs> Uh, let's face it, that's, that's a really unorthodox route to health and efficiency for a severely wounded man. Health and efficiency used to be your favourite magazine, didn't it? In it the did, 90s. but if you think about it, once in the toboggan, he hasn't really got to use his legs in that. No, because other people would give him a push-off. They uh, would. And oh, Fred's oh, moving. Oh, oh, he's now blocked off the door entirely. So, yeah, he, um, it, 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 so once it's gone, once you've seen the, the crest yeah, around... There's no the, stopping it. Well, there's no stopping it. You can't exactly get off. So once he's on the sled and been given a bit of a push-off... Now, um, what happens to the average... Uh, he, he refuses to do the beginner's uh, thing. He goes straight for the, uh, the difficult one. Uh, he, he, and he, he comes off many a time. In one, he has a particularly bad smash-up, and that must have been terrible for him with his injuries. What, what did the smash-up do? Well, rather bizarrely, the, uh, the crash seemed to alleviate his spinal discomfort, while the clear cold air, which you mentioned, uh, did his damaged lungs the world of good. Now, afterwards, he could walk freely after the accident. Not perfectly, not wonderfully well, but he could walk. So he was well enough to return for a second tour of active service in South Africa. And he goes back in 1901. And he rises to the command of a mounted infantry regiment. One of, they're raising lots of different mounted infantry regiments. We're not going into any detail. Before returning to join, the at the end of the war, the second Royal Scots Fusiliers at Aldershot in 1903. Uh, I bet they were delighted to see him. Oh, look, it's the camel. <laughs> Bastard. I hate him. <laughs> don't want to play polo. I want to have a nice rest in England. Anyway, so um, he doesn't stay there long, does he? Um, he, he, he? He's got no future, really. He's never going to rise to the top. So what does he do? He takes up a career as a tobogganist. <laughs> no, Gary, although they could have done. What does he do? What does he do, Gary? Tell me, tell me. He takes the initiative by volunteering for a secondment to command the South Nigeria Regiment to the West African Frontier Force in Nigeria in late 1903. Now, this is the bit that I thought, when I first heard about this, I thought, oh, we've got to do loads and loads on this because it is the most exciting period you can imagine. It's In some ways, what he's doing is not uh, acceptable these days. What is he doing? I I mean, it's certainly not what you'd... It's it's uh, it's it's the sharp end of the empire operating against colonial people, uh, as you might say. What's he doing? Yeah, he's leading small columns against huge numbers of African natives. Now, fortunately for Trenchard, his opponents lacked modern weapons, and sometimes he secured victory by uh, simply setting off fireworks to scare them off. So this is this is very much the Blackadder. Uh, uh, you're you're with your Lee Enfields. Well, what? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they might have early. They'd have Lee Enfields. Uh, but but against people armed with pointed, sharpened fruit and things like that. It, it, but in mass numbers, if they get in amongst you, what what happens when they get in amongst you? What do you which battle do you remember when? Well, Island 
Starmer as a case in point, which I think is what you're referring to. It is, Gary. Now, he was there for a while, Pete. He was there for six years and he played a key part in the mapping and, um, I hate oh. the word, pacification of great tracts of Nigeria. And then what happened? What happens to nearly all British people if they stay too long at that time in, in, in Nigeria? Well, in West Africa. Well, at that point, his health breaks under the strain and he returns to England. In fact, he's, uh, he's got an abscess of the liver, I believe. Ooh. Which would have been very painful. Yeah, have you got one of them? A liver, yeah. Now, what, so what next? He, he's, he's looking for new challenges. And you must imagine, he doesn't want to go back to regimental duty. And you can imagine him looking about, and then suddenly he sees a speck in the sky. Well, that's how I'm imagining. What does he do? Well, it's quite, it is quite unusual because at the uh, oldest permitted age, he takes up a new challenge, learning to fly aeroplanes. Now, he's, he's never a good pilot. But a flying certificate opened a new world of opportunity. So he, he, he passes. He passes. Just. <laughs> and he was soon made adjutant of the Central Flying School. So basically an organisational post, a staff officer, if you like, within the command structure of the uh, Central Flying School. Um, do you, where, what, where do you think he's... What, how do you think he's, uh, he benefit? What, 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 what could he show them from that well, position? Well, he's got a domineering character, but, but he's got great administrative skills. And together, they would play a real role in shaping the fledgling Royal Flying Corps, which was formed in 1912. Now, uh, we'd better jump on. Uh, the outbreak of war comes. Uh, I presume he's given an important post. That was in he? August 1914. Was it? It was. I'm just demonstrating a the knowledge there, Pete. Yeah, excellent. Uh, really... Following the debacle of Fleur's corselet. <laughs> oh, don't worry about Let's that. Let's not again. mention Fleur's corselet. We, well, somebody just did. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was the date of Fleur's corselet, uh, Gary? Uh, 15th of September to the 22nd of September. Sorry. 1916. 16. You're going for 16 this time. I'm going for 16 this time. <laughs> right. Uh, so um, now, um, he's given a, is he given an important post or is he given the post he wants? Does he fly off into action? What happens? Well, he's left behind in com- command of the Central Flying School. So he's most... now, hang on, he's not adjutant anymore. No, he's no, com- he's commandant. commanding. Um, he's two years later. Uh, but most of the RFC left for active service in France. So how does he respond? Does he respond cheerfully and with good grace? Well, he performs his job conscientiously and he, he does receive his reward when in November 1914 he took command as a lieutenant colonel of the first wing as part of the first army commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Douglas Haig. We've heard of him. We have. Um, now, Trenchard, he he's left an account of their briefing for the Battle of Neuve Chapelle, which was held on the sixteenth of February, nineteen fifty. So this is uh, this is uh, he's, uh, he's Hague's called him in and asked him what uh, what the Royal Flying Corps can do to help in the Battle of Neuve Chapelle, and you're going to be Hugh Trenchard, Colonel uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Trenchard, explaining what you can do. I tried to explain what I thought they would do in future, besides reconnaissance work. He was interested. Then he said he was going to tell me something that only three or four people in the world yet knew. In March, we were to launch an attack on the Germans. I was not to tell anybody. He said, Well, Trenchard, I shall expect you to tell me before the attack whether you can fly, because on your being able to observe for your artillery and carry out reconnaissance, the battle will partly depend. 
If you can't fly because of the weather, I shall probably put off the attack. Now, we've always been slightly dubious of that because uh, if you look in Haig's correspondence, it says something like, brief, brief, trench art. But uh, uh, it is quite, it it is a sign. They formed a very close bond, didn't they? These two rather, well, you can... You can over-exaggerate Haig's inarticulateness, but they, they were both known or thought to be inarticulate. I think that's probably... Uh, and they form a close relationship, don't they? Um, yeah, but, but, but whilst both were taciturn, they were both efficient staff officers. Very, very efficient, yeah. Now, um, Haig had always been an advocate of uh, aeroplanes, uh, and although he'd been beaten in 1912, that's because he placed too much trust in their reconnaissance and was rather outmanoeuvred because of it. Um, and he would support... Trenchard through and through, uh, helping him in what is a bit of a dizzy rise to heights because eventually he's Major General commanding the Royal Flying Corps on the Western Front. And this happens very quickly, doesn't it? It does. And at one point in uh, the summer of 1915, he's actually promoted twice. Where he's promoted to full colonel and then brigadier general. So it's a meteoric rise, rather like my own. In the army or in civilian life? Uh, civilian life, obviously. <laughs> Now, uh, now, what is the bedrock of their relationship, would you say, Gaza? Well, it was Trenchard's grasp that the RFC was entirely subordinate to the requirements of the army. And what does that mean in practice? Because, uh, uh, so, the, the, the Royal Flying Corps, uh, I've got to make this clear, is part of the army. It's a corps, like the Royal Army Corps, uh, Royal Army Medical Corps, whoops, uh, about the Royal Artillery. It's a corps. So, what do, what did, what was it to do? What, what it's subordinate? What is it going to do? Well, it, it's it's providing aerial photography to map German trenches. We've done that. Track yeah. their movements, as well as pinpointing targets such as gun batteries. And then there's something else they can do with, with wireless transmitters and a clock code. What else can they do? Yeah, the use of a simple clock code and wireless transmission would then enable aerial artillery observers to guide the shells onto the target to devastate an effect. So they can locate a target through photography and then destroy it through artillery observation and that that's that's what they can do any other duties yeah further duties were the contact patrols to chart progress in attacks ground strafing and interdiction uh, bombing to try and cut out uh, german rail and road links to the battlefield now but all of those things uh, contact patrols uh, ground strafing interdiction bombing all of them are, are, are more aspirations and something that can do that well but they're trying to do all of them uh, most of that is linked to uh, bomb load and, uh, and, and, and aircraft. Uh, they just couldn't carry in enough to, uh, bombs to make it worthwhile. Um, so uh, now Trenchard also realises one great principle, that the Royal Flying Corps must bear any losses to, 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 to achieve what the army wants. That whatever the army wants, that comes first. They, they have to get through, they have to do it. Now what's one of the first challenges to the Royal Flying Corps in the summer of 1915? What, what, what happens? What could it be? Well, it's the advent of the Fokker monoplane with its forward-firing synchronised machine gun uh, preying on the RFC aircraft in late 1915. The fuckers. It's... <laughs> yes. I'm not saying anything. Now, um, so, so uh, what does so does that mean? You know, uh, does that mean they stop flying missions over the lines? No, Trenchard orders his men to keep on flying over the line despite the Fokker scourge. His only compromise being that formations of aircraft were sent out on missions formerly carried out by lone aircraft. So this is uh, what we're talking about: is the B two Cs, the Moraine parasols. These are very seemingly at the time. Uh, 
they seemed the Fokker seemed to because it had a forward firing machine gun. They they were in essence obsolescent. Uh, they were they were easy prey, weren't they? Yeah, they were. But you know, in sending them out together, aircraft could at least try to defend each other. Security in numbers. Yes, indeed. I see. Now, um, but underpinning everything, let's go back to the basic principle. What is the basic principle? Well, that losses must be accepted to get results. And and in in late 1915, they keep going and the gamble works because a whole new generation of British aircraft arrive in uh, the or the spring and summer of 1916. Now we, we've gone through them. I've gone. I've been through them several times with you. And I remember drawing you a pie chart and an example of a and and uh, what new aircraft can you remember? Well, I can remember the FE2B. So that's a two-seater pusher. The DH2 single-seater pusher. The FE8. Single-seater pusher. The Newport Scout. French single-seater tractor aircraft. Uh, quite a good one, that one. And your favourite, the Sopwith one and a half strutter. Oh, magnificent beast. <laughs> Why was it called the one and a half strutter, Gary? Because it had one and a half struts. Well, on one wing, on the other wing, it had another one and a half. I've often thought that. Why wasn't it called the two and two halves strutter? But no, all right. Now, what they do is they allow the RFC to seize control of the skies above the Somme battlefield. Why the Somme, Gary? What's just that? at the time when it most mattered, between June and September of 1916. What happened in September? Well, it's September 1916, on the 15th of September, was about the Fleurs Corselet. <laughs> now, um, now... Uh, but Treadchard had an, an, an assistant, and, 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 and this was a, a newcomer to the world of uh, military. It was Morris Baring, Captain Morris Baring, who'd been brought in as his um, sort of adjutant. And he was sort of someone who, who turned... <laughs> it said Trenchard's inarticulate grunting, much akin to my own inability to express myself just recently, um, into sort of beautiful prose because Morris Baring was quite a well-known novelist of the time I mean no one's ever heard of him now of course in fact he's best known for his book on the Royal Fly Corps um, but he he, um, he, um, he came in and uh, he committed uh, a whole exposition of what was Trenchard's relentlessly offensive aerial strategy and uh, why do I say relentlessly offensive? Well, uh, Hugh Trenchard will explain, and that's going to be you, Gary. Owing to the unlimited space in the air, the difficulty one machine has in seeing another, the accidents of wind and cloud, it's impossible for aeroplanes, however skilful and vigilant their pilots, however powerful their engines, however mobile their machines, and however numerous their formations, to prevent hostile aircraft from crossing the line, if they have the initiative and determination to do so. What a sentence that is. <laughs> it's about 400 subclauses. I don't know how you did that. Carry on. Carry on, you. The aeroplane is not a defence against the aeroplane, but the opinion of those most competent to judge is that the aeroplane, as a weapon of attack, cannot be too highly estimated. On the British front, during the operations which began with the Battle of the Somme, we know that although the enemy has concentrated the greater part of his available forces in the air on this front, the work actually accomplished by their aeroplane stands compares with the work done by us in the proportion of about four to one hundred. So if you got four reconnaissance missions the, the, uh, the, uh, for, for the Germans, the British would do a hundred. Uh, what makes you say those figures 
exactly Hugh Trenchard. Well, he's just made them up. You think so, do you? I don't, yeah. I mean, it's it's 25 to 1, isn't it? So it's it's just made up, I think. Now, the plan is, you have relentlessly offensive patrols. You send all your aircraft, your scout aircraft, that's what we call it, fighters now, and pushing across far behind the German lines, uh, and you beat back the German aircraft, keeping them as far as possible from the vital front line areas. And behind them, you have what we call the core aircraft, the, the artillery observation aircraft, the photo reconnaissance aircraft, carrying out their missions. Um, and you accept, you don't guard them. What you do is you accept that some people may break through from the forward screen. And uh, then it's a bit like in rugby, a game that you're unfamiliar with. Uh, you accept that, okay, if, you know, if you play the game under the enemy's posts, the other team's post, not enemy, then if they break, they might break out, but you'll win the game. Um, so, so that was his plan. Um, um, now, by this time, what would you say, uh, where, where would you say St- Trenchard's standing, you know, summer of 1916? Well, well, he's, he's in his element. He's, he's a brash, loud-voiced man. His nickname was Boom. Is that because he boomed? That's a bit of a change from Camel. <laughs> Um, he was intolerant of failure, but nevertheless had a certain panache that let him get away with statements that might seem inflammatory from a lesser man. Now, you've got an example of this. And this is one of my all-time favourite quotes that I love doing in talks, but I see you bagseed it. This is Hugh Trenchard. I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Just because I'm condemned to ride about in a big Rolls Royce and sit out the fighting in a chair. You mustn't think I don't understand. Wonderful. That'll cause a, a riot now. <laughs> it's fantastic. I feel so sorry for him, sitting in his chair and riding about in his Rolls Royce. While all his lads are off fighting. Um, insensitive. Uh, that, now, that phrase, just it, it betrays a certain insensitivity in some ways. Uh, but uh, and and the, the phrases he said a lot of things like that. He reminds you in some ways of Hunter West and his ability to say things that can be held against him, if you like. Um, but um, he'd but some, also, some he'd of al- the things he got right, though, Pete. And tell I think, me, give me an well, example. Well, one thing that Trenchard developed was a policy of replacing all casualties on the day of their demise. Now, a, a pool of uh, pilots and observers were held at the base at Saint Omer to ensure that his insistence on a full breakfast table with no empty chairs were not just empty words. Now, actually, I think that's the right thing to do. Although it seems callous, it's in fact designed to help maintain the squadron morale. And you're going you're gonna to read a quote from Hugh Trenchard. Hugh Trenchard explains it. And do you know what? I think he explains This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Explains it perfectly. I always looked on the RFC as a family. I tried to put myself in the others' places and to consider the feelings of those who flew as if they had been my own. If, as an ordinary pilot, you see no vacant places around you, the tendency is to brood less on the fate of friends who have gone forever. Instead, your mind is taken up with buying drinks for the newcomers and making them feel at home. It was a matter of pride and human understanding. You see, Trenchard has to get his men through these problems. He is telling them, you have to fly over the... What happens if an aeroplane is shot down over over, over, over German lines? What's the best that can happen to you if you're in an aircraft that's shot down? Well, the best Put, is that you're taken prisoner. And, and, and the worst? That you die a whole day. So there's going to be a lot of casualties. You're flying most of your missions, especially if you're a scout pilot, over German lines. Your core aircraft are carrying out the missions, even if the Germans appear. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So so what does that mean? Well, mostly it means that the pilots have to learn to make the best of a bad job. Most of them seem to have understood or at least accepted his orders, but the inevitable death toll led to some... Uh, um, resentment. resentment. You know, that's what I'd call it, if not downright hatred. Yeah, and, and what they considered to be a simplistic and brutal approach. And you're going to be Lieutenant Thomas Hughes of one squadron... RFC. Always one of my failures. Get, he's, a, he's such a bad-tempered bugger. I love him. Trenchard follows a good military principle of repeating any tactics that have not been actually disastrous, and often those that have, again and again, regardless of the fact that the enemy will probably think out some very good reply until they really are so disastrous that they have to be abandoned. Now, he's missing the point. I'm sorry, but Thomas Hughes, he's a brave man. He's killed in, I think, 1918. He is a brave man, and he fought right from 1914. But he's missing the point. Because what happens if they don't carry out the artillery observation and uh, the uh, the uh, art, uh, and, and, and uh, photo reconnaissance? What well, happens? The losses on the ground would be mag- magnified tenfold. I mean, it, it, the whole point is, as Trenchard understood... They are in support of the actions of the army. Who are suffering hell on earth on the Somme. Absolutely. And actually, the tactics had worked well during the Battle of the Somme. Until? The advent of the German Albatross D1 in September 1916 signalled that the technological pendulum... We talked about that before, haven't we? we talked about that before, and it had swung back in favour of the Germans. So why? Well, let's talk about that. Albatross D1... It's the first, I would call it the first, and many, so when I say I, people call it, <laughs> I just copied them, <laughs> the first, sorry, the first second generation scout. Ah, so uh, not like, uh, not like uh, Trenchard at all, I'm, uh, I'm so verbally fluent. Now, why would, what was different about the D1 then? Well, it, it's streamlined. It's much more streamlined than most of it. It's got two machine guns firing through the propeller. And they're, they're, they're proper machine guns. They're not Lewis guns stuck on the front like a DH2. Uh, with, with how many rounds in the uh, drum? Lewis gun, 47, I think. Yes, that's right. 
Uh, it's got a powerful engine. I always used to joke when I was speaking in the West Midlands, and uh, I used to say, and of course, the, it had a powerful engine, much like German cars that have seen the end of the British car industry in the West Midlands. Uh, and there's some truth in that. It had an excellent engine. It was fast. And what does it do to every single British aircraft available on the Western Front in 1916? Well, they're, they're, they're obsolete in, in a moment. They're completely outclassed. Now, Trenchard was very quickly aware of this, uh, and, but he's still determined, he keeps his principle, the, the Royal Flying Corps still have to do their duty. Well, also, you can't change the aircraft overnight. You know, you've got to, you've got to wait for new aircraft to arrive. You can't and, just change And what's change the biggest hold-up? The engine. Because you, 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 you can't just magic up an engine and fit it to an aircraft. It takes months, if not years. Um, I suppose, if you like, he, he, he just thinks back to 1915, the Fokker Scourge. Uh, they've done it before, they'll do it again. Um, is the Royal Flight, does the Royal Flight Corps have any advantage that you might be able to see? Yeah, I mean, they've still got a, a, a numerical superiority and the Germans still rarely cross the British front line. Because they're on the defensive. They don't particularly need to know where things, British things are. They know they're coming. Yeah, I suppose not. Uh, so the Germans are automatically on the back foot in that way and, and we have enough aircraft to do it. We can withstand losses. Although whether we can withstand crew losses forever and ever... Um, so does uh, what does Trenchard do? What does he do? There's well, another not, threat. He's not the type of man to bend with the wind. He stands firm and he pushed back. Ooh. The Somme was the first great test for the developing theories of aerial warfare. And despite the new German scouts, the Royal Flying Corps still managed to deliver the services that Haig required. So despite the losses, they just keep on going. The losses are cruel during the back end of 1916, but everything Haig and Rawlinson and Goff want is provided. The photographs, the artillery observation, it's just painful. Uh, what is this? This is one of the great lessons of, of aerial warfare. What is it? What is that lesson? Well, that superior... Supremacy in the air <laughs> meant the ability to keep army photographic reconnaissance and artillery observation aircraft above the front, and the question of casualties incurred was almost immaterial. So they'd done the, they'd carried out those duties. That's why a book I wrote on the Battle of the Somme was called Somme Success. Uh, 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 it was a, a, an amusing title to me in the sense that for the Royal Flying Corps, it was a success. They discharged their duties. Uh, and it was the moment they came of age uh, as, as a fighting corps, uh, 1916. Um, now, as 1917 uh, comes up, what, what does uh, Trenchard think of the situation, the overall situation? Well, he knows that the Army Cooperation Squadron... That's the artillery observation and photographic, yeah. They need a better aircraft. Well, what they got? Well, they've got the long-serving, but frankly, hopelessly obsolete, B-2 series. What uh, What does BE stand for, Gary? Uh, Bellerio Experimental. Yes. Oh, well. <laughs> now, the first B-2C, that dates back to June 1914. And after three long years of war, it had only been supplanted by variants. Give me some examples of those variants. Well, imaginatively, the B-2D, the B-2E and the B-2G, but they all shared its generic faults and offered no real improvement in performance. They were, they're minor tweakings, weren't they? Uh, now, the intended replacement... And this, this illustrates the point we were making early. Does the, 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 the intended is the... I think it's a reconnaissance uh, REA. Anyway... Uh, it's, it's the REA. The, uh, it's, it's from 
from the Royal Aircraft Factory, and it's the uh, Reconnaissance Experimental 8. Mark 8. Now, wh- wh- why-, why can't that be brought in back in the 16? Well, it, 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 it's your point about the engine. It's, it's more powerful, um, but it does seem to be jinxed right from the start. Design work, that had begun early 1916, and the first prototype emerged as early as July 1916. And what happens to prototypes? Oh, exactly. But then there's a shortage of raw materials and myriad other problems which seem to dog the progress of the aircraft from drawing board until it finally arrived at the front in February 1917. And from that point, the BE-2 series is gradually withdrawn and replaced by the RE-8s. Although when the RE-8s still get out, they still think it's a spinning incinerator. There are loads of rumours it's no good. Actually, it's a good, solid aircraft. And between the two, they serve the British, uh, the Royal Flying Corps, and then the RAF throughout the, the war. Uh, the, the two, the, just those two. Now, what about scouts, the, what, what people now call fighters? Well, it's the same thing. Trenchard's fully aware that he, he desperately needs to increase both the number and quality of his scout squadrons. The aircraft that had triumphed in the Somme skies in 1916 were seriously outclassed. So what, where are the replacements? What, what are the intended replacements? Well, it's the, uh, the Sopworth Pup, the Sopworth Triplane, the Newport 17 and the Spad 7. Now, they, none, they none of them, they're not really up to it, are they? Well, no, not really. They can't compete with a combination of speed and powerful perform, performance at all altitudes that's possessed by the Albatross. So, in a sense, the Albatross has jumped a generation of British uh, scouts. It, it, it is, the, you know, the, the response, the first response is not as good as the German Albatross, is it? No, but there is another generation oh, of British no. scouts. Oh, no. When's that coming? What, what is it? What is it, Gary? What is it? Well, it, it's the excellent SE5A. What does SE stand for? I don't know. Scout experimental. Thank you, Peter. What's the A stand for? Uh, Mark A. Ah, thank you, Peter. What's the 5 stand for? <laughs> That's the... I don't know. <laughs> uh, so there was the SE5A, the Sopwith Camel, Ooh, and the Bristol on. Fighter. What, what was his nickname? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Bristol fighters, so the Sopwith fighter, Sopwith camels are a lovely little thing, very sharp turning, and the Bristol fighter is a two-seater fighter. Yeah, but um, none of those are going to be on the Western Front in any numbers until after the opening of the Battle of Arras. Hang on, did you say after the opening? After the opening, yes. After the opening. Yeah. So Hay could just postpone the Battle of Arras? He, let, you know, none of this 9th of April 1917, we'll make it July. Could he do that? No, of course not. And what followed at Arras was a tragedy. Why couldn't he? Because the French, it was actually a diversion for the French, which was happening uh, 14th, no, I can't remember, 16th, 14th, another time, uh, a couple of weeks later or a week later. So it's a diversion. So you can't delay it. What is it then? What is it? What happens? Well, the, the, the RFC air crew took to the skies knowing that they must die in their obsolescent aircraft many of them but yeah. the infantry would die in immeasurably greater numbers if the guns of the royal artillery were not properly harnessed to their destructive task blimey i mean what what must those men have thought what what do they need in those circumstances what sort of man do they need at the helm well they need forceful leadership and uh, and, and trenchard was not the kind of man to evade his responsibilities he saw the larger picture. He knew that certain missions simply had to be successfully accomplished. And if one attempt should fail, then another effort must be launched immediately, regardless of casualties. Now, this isn't stupidity not, or is bravado. It? No, no, no. It's just a grim military necessity. Nowadays, you call it a reality. 
And many of the men asked to risk their lives fully understood what they were doing. And you're going to be Captain Bernard Rice of 8 Squadron RFC. Most of these great struggles have taken place miles in Hunland, where our people daily go to seek them out. Can you imagine the moral effect of this? But yet more has has been done. All these railway centres, billets, dumps and aerodromes are visited daily and nightly and tonnes of bombs loosed off on them. Never do they get a minute's peace and they can't stop us. All these reserve defences are photographed several times per week so we know just what he's doing. We've been working in close contact with the artillery and infantry. The infantry always feel that they are being watched over. Indeed a plane goes over first and bombs the points they are held up at. Signals to headquarters where they've got to and generally looks after their interests. That's things like contact patrols and ground traffic. He's slightly exaggerating here the effect of some of these things but they're nevertheless trying to do all this he carries on another plane watches for hung gun flashes and immediately on seeing any signals down positions etc by wireless to our gunners who proceed at once to silence them being corrected onto the target the meanwhile by the plane we have frequently swooped down and cleared a trench with our machine guns that's the ground strafford all this of course has cost us some casualties and the key words but it is well, it is worth the price. And what a brave man, because they are, it's their lives on the line for other people's. So this is courageous soldiers trying to make the difference. And you've got a Trenchard goes round all his squadrons, well, all, most of his squadrons, trying to boost morale. Reminds me of Montgomery and people like that and make a big fuss of them in the Second World War. But Trenchard did it in the First World War. But his visits have quite an impact, sometimes not entirely as he designed, owing to his unique personality. And you're going to be Major Sholto Douglas of 43 Squadron, Royal Flying Corps. Trenchard often came to visit us at Trezines, particularly during the period of our heaviest casualties. Although it was partly as a result of his aggressive policy in the air that we were having those shocking losses, it must not be thought that he was unaware of or indifferent to what was happening to us. Trenchard was very deeply concerned about that, but it did not change his opinion about what should be done, and that some of us should come to feel that he was wrong in some of his ideas is another matter altogether. The effect that Trenchard's visits had on the morale of those in the squadrons was almost magical. He was a tall man of a commanding presence, which was coupled with a personality that was extraordinarily inspiring. Yeah, I'm not sure about extraordinarily inspiring. He could be quite a difficult bugger. Uh, and, uh, and there was lots of interaction going on between the officers of the unit he, me- he met, the somewhat abrupt inarticulate and rude Trenchard and his charming urbane assistant uh, Captain Morris Baring who we talked about earlier and Baring develops it's hilarious to my mind he develops a series of unofficial punishments so that if if Trenchard was overly abrasive i.e. told everybody what they could do uh, he would punish him and I'm going to be Lieutenant Thomas Marson of uh, 56 Squadron, Royal Flying Corps. Famous, famous unit. That's McCudden's unit, isn't it? The aggrieved party was always rung up and informed the general behaved very badly today. He, he had punishment number one all the way home. He almost cried for his pipe, but I was adamant. I had it in my pocket, but I said I could not think what he'd done with it. 
At dinner, he was very penitent, and so he was allowed to find his pipe afterwards. I think he's really sorry and will be better now. And I just love the idea of him being this bad-tempered, in some ways horrible, blustery man being treated like a child by this... Yeah, I mean, it might have been a joke, but, but the, the combination of the committed energy and direct me- methods of the overly blunt Trenchard and the sophisticated wit of ah, Bering... That's very wit. Hiding his pipe is sophisticated And it wit. did a great deal to maintain a good relationship between the uh, RFC headquarters and their hard-pressed squadrons in the field during bloody April. Bloody April uh, 1917, the, the, the Battle of Arras. Now, new scouts do arrive in the early... So too late, but June, July, they start to arrive. And the, the air war from then on, is, it's more in an equilibrium, isn't it? I, I said that because I knew you wouldn't be able to. I would uh, have said balanced. <laughs> nah, you're not Morris Bearing by any chance. <laughs> um, the new types of aircraft... On both sides, from then on, are broadly equal. So you get the Fokker D7 arriving, you get uh, the Fokker triplane. On our side, you've got the Spad, you've got the, the Camel, you've got the SE5. There, there's not much, the Sop with Dolphin, there's not much uh, difference from now to the end of the war. And it's all a lot less fraught. Uh, how do they do uh, during the Third Battle of Ypres? That follows well, on. They, they do well, they continue uh, to perform their many roles and and with increasing attention to the ancillary tasks of bombing and ground attack. That's what uh, earlier on Bernard Rice was talking about. It's still not that effective because you can't carry many machine gun bullets and you can't carry many bombs. They're often only the little £25 of bombs. Now, uh, what changes in 1918, Gary? Why, why does everything change? Well, the defeat of Russia... Uh, plus the Germ- uh, the Germans, the Americans joining the side of the <laughs> Allies. The Germans join the Allies! Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> uh, that means that the Germans are, are forced to launch a major attack on the Western Front in the spring of 1918. Before now, the Americans They're trying to secure victory before the millions of American soldiers. Now that means that the Germans now have to get their reconnaissance and artillery observation aircraft across the line. Um and, and their, their scouts have to stop the Royal Flying Corps reconnaissance aircraft. It's sort of in cha- turned it's around. It's role a bit, reversal, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah, it's role reversal. Um, so, so the, the, who's got to do all this now? The Germans have to do the artillery observation, infantry contact patrol, low flying ground stuffing. Um, the German. What does it mean overall about the German air force? What are they no longer? They're not on the. Well, they're not on the defensive, and once the offensive begins, the German aircraft will be needed more than ever for artillery observation duties. Now, uh, so at this point, this is a critical point, what happens then? Is, is Trenchard left in charge? Well, at this point, he's recalled to London to take up the position of uh, Chief of the Air Staff. Now, his replacement was Major General John Salmond. Hmm. I don't think that makes much difference. Salmond's very much one of... Uh... Well, well, he's Trent, a Trenchard man, Trent. absolutely. And he had no intention of changing the priorities of the RFC. But something else happens, doesn't it? 1st of April uh, 1918, what else happens? Well, at the height of the German Spring Offensive, great timing, the uh, Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service had to suffer a root and branch reorganisation that turns them upside down and inside out. Uh, this why why well, that what's going what but Gary why why well following the Gotha bomber raids on London in the summer of uh, uh, 1917 a public inquiry headed by the South African soldier politician politician Lieutenant General Jan Christian Smuts had made a series of recommendations that looked far into the future certainly well beyond the reality of the situation of 
1917 or 18. So what does he... He, he basically puts... I, I, it's difficult to explain. I don't agree with Smuts, and I don't agree with what was done. Um, well, what, 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 he, he considers that aircraft will soon be the prime means of waging war, and that they'd eclipse the forces of land and sea. And he wanted to create a new force, the Independent Air Force, to carry out strategic bombing in the German industrial heartlands. Now, he believed it had to be independent to ensure that its operations were not sublimated beneath the routine operations demanded by the army. And uh, at a stroke, you're, uh, you're, that, that sort of endless argument between what the army needs and what the IR... Uh, is half the rows in the high command in the Second World War. They're delineated there. But that's not all he proposes, and it's the next thing that's quite weird. Well, uh, uh, for, for the 1st of April 1918, is what is it? Well, he proposed that the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service should be amalgamated to create one air force bound together with one command system, a single supply system, and under the overall control of an airboard and staff. Now, Trenchard, how does he react? He's completely mortified. So Um, what does he say? He says, I thought that if anything were done at that time to weaken the Western Front, the war would be lost, and there would be no air service, united or divided. I wanted to unify it, but later on at a more suitable opportunity. Uh, sir, it, 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 it didn't happen. It was The RAF was formed on the 1st of April 1918. How does he do it? We've got to glide past this because, in a sense, his career burns out a bit. How did he do back in London as Chief of the Air Staff? Well, he's, he's appalled by the prevalence amongst his political masters of both simplistic air policies and rampant intrigues against his old chief, Haig. Oh, he likes Haig. Well, he's certainly supportive of, the, of him. And uh, as How both... about his personality? How does he, uh, how does he get on with uh, the air minister, well, uh, Lord Rothermere? Well, <laughs> the situation becomes untenable. So Why? That, that tells Why? You. Well... <sighs> they're both natural autocrats, aren't they? They're, just, they're both bastards. They're, yes, <laughs> And, and Trenchard stands down, uh, I think, around April 1918, and he's replaced by Major General Sir Frederick Sykes. Oh, who had been deeply unpopular in the RAF, which is quite interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, sorry, in the Royal Flying Corps. Now, after a short break, Trenchard is then appointed to command the Independent Air Force, uh, which had been created on the 6th of June 1918 as part of uh, these reforms. Um, now... Trenchard, he does a root and branch rethink into the targets to be tackled by the bombers. Uh, what does he do? What does he do? What's, what's, what, what's, he, what's he think would be best? Well, he does consider the possibility of focusing on key German industrial towns, thereby destroying them one by one. Uh, despite the potential of the concept, he felt that it's simply not feasible. So he thinks about it, but then he turns against it. Why not? Well, Hugh, well are you going to tell us? I'm going to tell you what he said. Hugh Trenchard says... It was not possible with the forces at my disposal to do sufficient material damage so as to completely destroy the industrial centres in question, even had the force been larger. In other words, the aircraft and the numbers. I mean, these aren't Wellingtons or Lancasters or super bombers of that sort. These are little DH-9s and uh, uh, what's the one, Handley Pages and things. Even the Handley Page could only carry a derisory thing compared to a Wellington or a, a, a Lancaster. Now, so so what? So he decides not to focus on one city at a time. So what does he do? Well, he decides that a scattergun approach to targets is far more effective because of the limited forces available at the time. Explain it in more detail, Hugh. Hugh Trenchard says, by attacking as many centres as could be reached, 
The moral effect was first of all very much greater, as no town felt safe, and it necessitated continued and thorough defensive measures on the part of the enemy to protect the many different localities over which my force was operating. At present, the moral effect of bombing stands undoubtedly to the material effect in a proportion of 20 to 1, and therefore it was necessary to create the greatest moral effect possible. Now you, another, I have no idea where 20 to 1 comes from. Are you, are you saying he's not? His statistics are made up, but this is the second time you've well, expressed well, doubt. How does it, where does it come from? I have no idea where he's What do you mean? I, I, I take it as mean it, it, the moral effect is far more important. Um, uh, um, he also resolves that they should attack. Well, I'll just deal with this before we discuss this point. Uh, they, they should dis- attack uh, airfields, uh, German airfields. Why? Well, it's a, it's a vicious game of tit for tat to prevent the Germans bombing his own airfields out of existence. So you get them first. Get in there first. Now, what's this business about moral effect? Um, it's a work in progress, the whole thing of strategic aerial bombing, isn't it? Um, how much damage do you think they do, the bombs? Well, well, they, it, the damage caused by the tumbling bombs is, is, is often not very serious, although the raid certainly forced a significant expenditure of scarce German resources to try and fend off the bombers. So what you mean is they have to put scout squadrons on duty at home, and as they don't know where the Germans are going, they can't focus them, so they're spread out across the, well, in the Rhineland mainly. But So they, they've got to have a lot of resources to defend their things. Yeah, and as Trenchard thought, the, the main effect of the raids was a disruption of production as factories suspended their work and that had a moral effect amongst the civilian population. So what you mean is when, when the railways stop running, the uh, they, they, uh, the iron and steel factories switch off their Bessemer furnaces, which take half a day to switch back on, uh, factories stop work. When those alarms go, the air raid sirens, it, it, it causes panic and, 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 and mor- a morale effect. And generally that does more damage to production than the actual bombs. Yeah, and the time for long-range strategic bombers would come, but it wasn't in 1918. No, it's not in... Some other time. <laughs> Some other war. Well, we know when it was. It was in the Second World War. Um, now, um, so that... And he finishes his job there. It's a, in a sense, it's always... Because he was the great teacher of air, air, army air cooperation, and yet he's put on strategic bombing, which he's not, at that point, he, he doesn't think it's ready for it, is it? And it, it's a bit sad for his career in the First World War. They, in the end, he... He's almost a diversion of uh, bombers from uh, where he thinks they should have been bombing the German rear areas uh, for tactical purposes as opposed to strategic. Now, um, in the, so the war ends. Uh, what, what happens to Trenchard? We, we're, we're not dealing much on this. Well, post-war, Trenchard once again appointed as uh, Chief of the Air Staff in March 1919. But it's in a climate of severe budgetary cuts and he, he, he led the fight to preserve the independence of the RAF he defended the uh, the funding and pressing to employ the RAF in various colonial conflicts to justify their existence. This is bombing uh, Iraq uh, villages in Iraq who, and things like that. It's, it's not entirely nice, but it's it's it, yeah. He also what else does he do? He he, he shows his, his initiative in a couple of other things. What else does he? Well, things that have existed until quite recently or even today. Well, he he found he founds the RAF College at Cranwell, the aircraft apprentice scheme and the Reserve Auxiliary Air Force, and he became the first Marshal of the RAF. I remember that the people, when the, 
when they chose their ranks, they, they said it sounds like Lilliput. It sounds normal to us, Air Chief Marshal and all the rest of it. But in those days, people used to say, what is this? Ludicrous titles. Anyway, he did become uh, First Marshal of the uh, RAF. Um, so um, what, what was his thinking? Had he changed his thinking? Well, he pushed the primacy of the bomber. So that is a change. Yeah, he, he believed that the UK could only be defended by threatening the homelands of the aggressors. The bomber, this is the idea the bomber must always get through. Yeah, he didn't really appreciate the defensive strength that modern fighters offered against bombers. Uh, And he also neglected the whole area of army cooperation. That's a bit weird, isn't it? it? Yeah, I mean, that had been the centrepiece of his years on the Western Front. It's very strange. So it's strange. Uh, And that's what he is in part responsible for the RAF's failure to address army cooperation in 1940 when the British Army performs not very well. Um, how long does he last? Well, he stands down in 1930. And is that the end of him in public life? No, he went on to act as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police from 1931 to 1935. And our, our chums in the police will, will uh, remember he had quite an effect, the Trenchard years. Uh, what about in the Second World War? Well, he would be an unofficial Inspector General to the RAF. Turning up and shouting at people. Turning up and shouting at people and then leave. Uh, he died on the 10th of February 1955. Now, Gary, you've been... We, we've talked about this uh, during this podcast. Uh, what do you think of him? What What is your your personal view on Trenchard? What, how does it come across to you? Well, he might have been a difficult and intransigent man, but he had a real claim to be considered the father of the RAF. And actually, a lot of the, the things that he did were right. You did have to support the army in the way that the RFC did. And it was important to get the photographs and to support the artillery. Uh, Without it, the losses on the ground would have been enormous. Enormous as they were, they would have been even larger. So uh, it's it's a hard job and it's a cruel world. It is, and somebody has to do it. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?